Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Islamic Studies, Dr. Wah. I'm excited to talk to you about your your new book and uh, hear about uh, your long and illustrious career in Islamic Studies. So thanks for making the time to talk to me. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Great to talk to you. So we always begin these conversations uh, with a little bit about our authors. Um, And I'm wondering if you could start with uh, kind of the initial things that brought you to the study of Islam. Um, and uh, if you could tell us a little bit about some of your training in Islamic studies at the University of Chicago. You were, at, uh, you were there at a really exciting period uh, with some, some very influential uh, teachers, but also uh, some wonderful colleagues. One of my advisors, Frederick Denny, uh, was there with you, I believe. So could you, could you tell us kind of what, what got you into Islamic studies and then how, how did your, uh, your kind of graduate training and early uh, formative years uh, shape the, the things you do? Sure, I can talk about that a little bit. Um, I got into this after I uh, studied at, the, at McMaster University in Hamilton um, in, and I graduated in uh, philosophy and history a BA in philosophy and history in 1959, which sounds like ages ago. But at any <laughs> rate, um, and, and part of that uh, period of time, you might remember, was uh, um, linguistic analysis in philosophy. And I, I found that to be totally inadequate to deal with the religious phenomenon that was all over the place. And in fact, was, um, I thought was uh, far more important in social and cultural development than, than philosophy at the time was giving it. So I, I completed a master's degree there in uh, uh, philosophy, <clears throat> and I went on then uh, to do a master's degree at the University of Chicago, and one of, uh, in the Divinity School at Chicago, and uh, where Mircea Eliade was, and he had instituted um, the new study of the history of religions, and I thought that was a, a, a critical <clears throat> and new stance to take. So <clears throat> I went there to study. I did an MA and in 68, and then um, uh, one of the requirements of the Divinity School at the time was that if you're studying you know, the general history of religions, that is the kind of philosophical perspective, you had to add a religious tradition so that you knew what to apply from your more philosophical studies into a religious tradition. Well, as you probably know, um, at that time, um, there was all kinds of emphasis on Buddhism and Hinduism in the United States, with several gurus being predominant. And... um, and nobody at the University of Chicago in in the Divinity School was looking at Islam, and 
So I said to Eliade one day, you know, I, I'd like to focus on Islamic studies. I'd like to focus on Islam and try to see how Islam fits into the history of religions. Well, he wasn't that very excited. <laughs> he said, well, <laughs> you know, we, uh, um, Islam is not greatly amenable to uh, history of religions categories. <clears throat> and so I said, well, that, that seems strange if the history of religion categories are supposed to address, you know, the, the broad scope of religion, I, I think then Islam should be part of that family of studies. Everybody else at Chicago, of course, was studying Hinduism and, um, you know, there were several important scholars in Hinduism at the time. But I, I prevailed. I said, no, no, I, I think we ought to see how uh, Islamic studies fits into the whole program of the history of religions and see if there are aspects of it that are important. So I went ahead with it. I did a, a master's degree in 1968. Then I um, began studying Islam and in um, the Oriental Institute, um, and at the time, Fazl Rahman came. I took classes with Fazl Rahman. Um, Fred Deddy came to, to uh, the Divinity School, and and uh, several of us were quite interested in Islamic studies. And so, from then on, um, I worked. I focused my attention on Islam. And, um, and other kinds of minority traditions like that. So um, then I went to um, Cairo, Egypt, to study Arabic at the American University in Cairo. And, um, and then I returned and completed my PhD in 1972 at the University of Chicago. So, um, as you probably know, the history of religions was, I guess, the flavor of the uh, year for several years in Chicago. And there was all kinds of emphasis on the history and analysis of um, epics and, and the times that um, history itself expressed through uh, religious understandings. So... I thought, well, maybe we should apply uh, this kind of uh, grid to Islam to see how it would work and if it would work. Um, I did a, a thesis there on symbolism in Islam, focusing specifically on, um, I guess you would call it symbols uh, within the historical development of Islam, Islamic theology. And um, then I began to teach, and I went, first of all, to Indiana University and taught there for a year. Then I went to Cleveland State and, and taught there for a couple of years. And then I uh, went to the University of Alberta in 1974 and became an assistant professor religious studies then. So behind all that, however, was, you know, a, a personal quest to 
understand how Islam fit into and related to uh, the larger circle of development of uh, culture in the West, and in fact how Islam seems to stand uh, across several divides in religious studies. So, uh, for example, it's pretty clear that Islam had something to do with the whole philosophical and scientific development of, of European culture. And it was pretty clear that Islam had something to do with the way in which Christianity in the Middle East defined itself. And um, so the, the various dimensions of Islam seem not to have been explored by the academy in the West. And I thought that was um, a kind of blind spot, if you will, in the way in which people uh, were looking at Islam, because it became so foreign, which in fact, it was not, because it was integral, in fact, to the way in which European culture developed and the way in which I saw uh, philosophical and medical culture develop. So, um, from, from that time on, then, I began to look at Islam as a dimension of, or at least an important aspect of, the way in which the West itself had defined itself religiously. So that's a kind of overview on how I came to the University of Alberta as a uh, assistant professor and uh, immediately uh, interacted with the, the folks over at Al Rashid Mosque. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, a really interesting history. Um, that you've been part of and uh, knowing kind of the broader trajectories of your, your work. I know that you've been, been working on uh, Muslims in Canada for a while. Um, but uh, I know that you're probably more well known for a lot of your work on Muslims in places like Morocco or Egypt um, and to probably some other folks to uh, some of your work on uh uh, indigenous religions. Um, so, uh, in terms of, of this book, um, on the community there in Edmonton, um, I could probably guess a little bit of how, how the story might've started. Um, but what made you decide to, to write this book? Uh, how, how did your kind of familiarity with the, the history of the community, uh, start to develop more, um, than just, you know, probably your personal interactions with the community. Uh, what made you decide to kind of flesh this out? Well, that's a kind of interesting story because, as, as you probably know from some of my first publications, one of my first ones was uh, on the Munchadin of Egypt, which was a study of the Sufi chanter in Egypt. And um, because when I was there uh, at the um, university, at the American University in Cairo, I I was intrigued by the Sufi groups and the chant, um, and in fact, uh, how it was that this kind of religious format took the dimensions it is. So I, 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 I decided I would go back and study that. And um, what that 
um, study gave me was a perspective into the the broad, what I would call cultural uh, landscape of Islam, that Islam could not be uh, fixed as what I would call a theological system. It, it could not be fixed as a, um, a kind of conservative um, religious tradition because it had many different dimensions. And so I mentioned that book because when I came back to Canada then and, and was interacting with the, the people over at Al-Rashid, I, I saw um, that that tradition in, in Alberta took on its own kind of character. In other words, that Islam was malleable and, and could adapt to many different kinds of cultural contexts. And in fact, uh, Muslims could take their tradition and, and adapt it um, to what I thought was a really significant kind of thing. So um, I began very early then making notes about al-Rashid. And of course, al-Rashid had, at the time, it had the, um, you know, it had all kinds of traditions said about it going back to 1890s, you know, when Peter Bakker, you know, came out of Montreal and, and was a peddler in the north. And there are all kinds of stories about how Muslims had an impact on the Cree people. Uh, for example, uh, um, Ali Abu Shadi was, uh, you know, uh, an individual who traveled across the north with pots and pans. And he and uh, he learned to speak Cree, and in fact, he he developed some Cree words uh, for um, pots and pans. And so he would go into a Cree community, and he would you know sell these things. And uh, and Peter Bakker was uh, a, a fur uh, he was a fur uh, explorer, and and so these chaps fascinated me, and their their interaction with uh, the indigenous people eh, fascinated me. So, um, so the connection between the Muslims and um, indigenous people began very early in my career there because I saw these as two very um, dynamic kinds of uh, cultural expressions interacting um, quite outside what we would call a theological framework. So that's how I got more and more interested in how al-Rashid had developed. And at the same time, I, I had, in, at Chicago, I had had a developed a secondary interest in indigenous studies and had worked uh, considerably behind the scenes, that is, um, intellectually, with uh, people who had done uh, history of religions kind of work on indigenous peoples around the world. So when I came to Alberta, one of the first things I did was to bring together elders and scholars to uh, discuss the way in which indigenous people fit into a history of religions format. So, um, in a way, um, my study in Islam opened up 
ways in which I could study um, this, uh, traditional peoples and, and most particularly the Cree in northern Alberta. So that's a kind of overview of how the Islamic studies and indigenous studies fit into my overall perspective and mm. how I got started on it. So um, these two areas then have attracted me all my life. And, and it's interesting to point out that when I held a conference of international elders and scholars, one of the individuals who came to that conference was <clears throat> Sister Nancy LeClaire. And Sister Nancy LeClaire was a Cree lady from Hobima in uh, Alberta. And she came to my office after the conference and said, you know, I want you to help me write a Cree dictionary. I said, Sister Nancy, I've studied Arabic, not Cree, and so I can't do that. She said, no, no. Uh, you, you have to do it. Uh, you know, I've um, I've talked to my Powhatan, and, and you, you have to help me with this. Well, if you look at my CV, you can see that 27 years later, uh, we produced the Alberta Elders Cree Dictionary, and therein is another story. But I won't go yeah. there today. <laughs> I'm um, sure you have a, a a number of stories. Yeah. Um. So. Uh, they're thinking about the history of Muslims in North America. Um, there's a lot of scholarship on, uh, Islam in the, in the U S and there's a number of history books now, uh, that kind of try to, uh, outline the, the, the long durée, um, and, you know, lots of wonderful case studies, of course. Um, and the, the history of Islam in Canada um, from what I can tell, and uh, forgive me if I'm uh, kind of uh, no, mis-describing uh, <laughs> it, but um, there there seems to be less uh, less scholarship, uh, and specifically monographs, on the history of, of Muslims in Canada. Um, while you you know your book is kind of zoomed into this one community, it really kind of provides a lot of the framework for thinking about this broader history. So I'm wondering if you could just kind of um, help us think about, um, you know, what you think the, the differences between uh, the study of Islam in Canada versus the study of uh, Islam in America uh, or the U S what, why do you think there's this kind of discrepancy? Why do you think there's uh, been less focus on uh, the history of Muslims in Canada? Well, uh, one of the reasons, I think, is because um, uh, historians have ignored uh, Islam as a um, constituent element of Canadian culture, um, mm. the same way that scholars have ignored the, uh, the, the constituency of the indigenous people. Um, <clears throat> so that there have been major themes in history written of, of how Canada became Canada that have not focused on the social and cultural uh, contributions of minorities to the uh, complexity of Canadian development. And the overwhelming presence of, of English history 
and and what we would call the official history, uh, then uh, downplays the significance of ethnic and and minority traditions in the overall complexity. In in it seems to me that in the United States there has been a far greater scholarship in ethnicity and in minority traditions than in Canada, and and in the role that they played, and so. I, I think that scholarship in um, part of it has in the states has been because of um, what we would call um, ethnic scholars have uh, decided to explore their own tradition through their scholarship. Whereas in Canada, we don't seem to have had that same kind of emphasis among uh, ethnic scholars to do that kind of thing. So uh, the other reason might be that uh, Canada is very diverse across the country and is um, is spread apart. And so the the interaction between, let's say, um, Islamic groups in Alberta or Islamic groups in Ontario is very tenuous. And and they haven't um, the institutional structures that would bring them together and would raise them to public consciousness. So therefore, the, the significance, I think, of Islam or other minority traditions um, is that they're regarded as totally local and um, not significant in the overall notion of Canadian development. Um, that's one of the features that I think about the, the Canadian versus the American situation. I don't find that in the United States where there's a continuous push to try to understand the role of, that minorities or, or particular viewpoints have played in the composite that is the USA. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, so your 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 book uh, focuses on um, this community around the uh, El Rashid Mosque, uh, and it's it's a very long history. This was the first mosque to be built in Canada. Um, and you you start this history uh, not with the building of the mosque, but uh, just prior to that. Um, so can you give us a little snapshot of what the, the Muslim population in Canada looked like in the, in the late 19th and early 20th century? Um, and what might, what might have brought Muslims to Edmonton in particular? Well, that's a that's an interesting question because um, it it wasn't formed like Islam in in Alberta was not formed there because of any kind of pre perceived need to evangelize uh, Canadians or to establish an Islamic viewpoint in in Canada. Um, really, it was the exploration of the early fur traders uh, who came from Lebanon around the turn of the uh, 1900. And they came here totally as entrepreneurs so that the, the early Muslims in Alberta, for example, were all uh, families interrelated because of entrepreneurial interests. In other words, they were businessmen. So. Alberta was graced, I think, by some very, very 
uh, forward-thinking and positive uh, business people in in the Arabic-speaking and um, and Islamic community. Now, where they why they got to uh, Edmonton was because that was a trading post very early in the fur trade, and the, some of the early people related to that. Um, fur trade network, so to speak. And they, and they basically brought materials from Montreal through Winnipeg and then up to the north and into places like Lac La Biche and then to Edmonton. And so um, very early on, it was not a religious motivation that brought them here. Um, it was more what I would call an extension of opportunity. And so they came to Alberta to promote business, to develop business, and many of it, many of these businesses were built on what I would call a, a family uh, interrelationship and compact. A, a cousin or a, a son would be welcomed here and would be helped in Canada uh, by a relative to get started in a business, and from there it grew. So I see one of the important dimensions of Al Rashid Mosque is these essential family structures out of Lebanon, built on a business concern and and built with the uh, attempt to construct a family. Enterprise in the Canadian North, without what I would call the religious uh, motivation as being central to it, which is quite different than, for example, the Christian Church in Canada, which came almost, um, you know, I think almost one hundred percent to try to convert. Uh, the Aboriginal peoples to Christianity. So there was a, an avowed religious orientation that became predominant in the relationship with Indigenous people through missions and all of that. That was not what um, the Islamic people, what the Muslims from Lebanon were concerned about. They were concerned to establish a community here that would sustain them and allow them to build successful businesses. So that, um, that means then that you have to study Islam in Canada through a prism, through a lens, if you will, of um, what we would call in the West a secular model. In other words, it's uh, the, the driving force is not religious in intent, so you don't lay um, a religious model on trying to understand how the community developed. It was more what I would call a family a connection, a leapfrogging of family from from Lebanon to Montreal to uh, Alberta and then developing Alberta as a center for um, entrepreneurial activity. Beyond that then came the attempt to establish in a very real and um, powerful way 
social and cultural support for Muslim people. And they did it in such a way as not to alienate um, Christians or others, but to do it in, in consort with them. So, for example, the mosque started out by buying a piece of land from the city um, by people who, um, by businessmen who had a very good relationship with the city and who were very successful. And so the mayor didn't have any problems, you know, saying to them, well, sure, if you can raise the money, you can buy this piece of land and I'll I'll sell it to you for $5,000. Well, um, who, who's going to do this? Are the businessmen going to go out and do this? No, it was the women who built the mosque, that is, financially. It was, um, it was people who, from families, and most of them wives and mothers, who decided that they were going to build this, the, the community this way. And they did it by... Um, an integral activity. Uh, Helwi um, went around. She was one of the wives of one of the early uh, pioneers here. And she went around to all of the businessmen on the main street and said, you know, give us a donation so we can build a mosque. And, and she, uh, Helwi Hamden was a, a brilliant woman. And she she went to all of these businesses, and and Hilvy was a woman that you didn't say no to. And so and, uh, she she helped put together enough money that they could buy the plot, and then you know it it just snowballed from there. They went on and on and on. And so one of the things that fascinated me was the role that women played in founding Islam in uh, Edmonton and in. Canada, and the role that women have played has been um, not put forward, in my view, as forcefully as it should be in terms of the founders of Islam in Canada. I don't know if that's so in this in the states. I, I my study of places in the states doesn't indicate to me that that women play the same kind of role. Um, so I guess what I would underline is that uh, this kind of family connection with powerful women was uh, critical, at least in the uh, Al Rashid mosque story. Now, um, people people could probably imagine the types of uh, activities that um, and 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 the issues and the political and social concerns that the, the community is probably dealing with now. But uh, what what were the types of uh, activities, The what were the types of kind of uh, global political discussions that were shaping uh, communal decisions, you know, right after the founding in the mid-20th century? Um, wh- what was going on with the mosque uh, during, during this kind of early period? You mean before the founding of in 1938, before they built the? Uh, uh, no, pretty much. Af- so after the founding, after you know, what was founding? it? What what was the community doing uh, in these kind of 
these early years, um, you know, you kind of make this break um, in the 70s. So, you know, before the the kind of shifting political uh, landscape uh, during the the 70s and then moving on, what's going on in the kind of the mid 20th century? Well, in in the mid 20th century, right, um, for example, after the war, um, um, they were consolidating their family's uh, business model, that is the Arab families. And so there was a uh, the founding of the mosque was basically uh, about 10 different families who went together to build the mosque. And then from there, they continued to build very solid businesses in Alberta. And, and the, um, the community itself, like Edmonton itself, had one of the best educational, public educational systems in Canada. And that um, assisted the community in building family strength. So many people came there because there was a, a strong, solid nucleus of um, Muslims there. And then um, they, they came to Edmonton because they wanted to give their children educational possibilities. And they saw uh, the educational development of Edmonton to be very positive. So they came because of that. They they also uh, decided as business people that they weren't going to be what we would call um, highly political. In other words, as, as the rise of Israel and the, the whole issues that galvanized the Middle East uh, became more and more predominant in the discourses about Islam, um, they did not want to, the community did not want to engage in that discussion because they they thought, I think quite rightly, that they were in Canada and they wanted to adopt a kind of Canadian viewpoint about what Islam was. So they set about to build a community that was based on um, what I would call Canadian concerns. For example, in building the mosque, uh, Hilwe Hamden and others uh, put on uh, community dinners and provided absolutely fantastic food so that um, Albertans and, and uh, Edmontonians were welcomed into the mosque ba- basement where they held all of these meetings and held all of these dinners. And in the early days, there was no attempt to um, strike a different kind of social and, and cultural attitude. In the mosque basement, they had a piano, and and um, one of the Ganims was well known for his uh, music. So they they had dances in the basement. They had uh, social activities in the basement, um, and they brought the community from outside into the the mosque. And so there was a kind of easy relationship between. Of the developing city of Edmonton and its diversity, and and the Muslims in the mosque, they did not see themselves as separate. They did not hide themselves off from the community because all of them, many of them, were very powerful businessmen in the community at large, and some of them made a great deal of money in Alberta at the time. 
So the mosque itself became a kind of cultural expression of an Islamic um, uh, awareness in Canada. And uh, so one of the overriding themes in my book is how did this group develop a Canadian Islam? Now, I must say that theologically, I, um, I've had some criticism from people in the Middle East who say, well, you know, Islam is one kind of thing. It's not, it's not Canadian or it's not Arab or it's not Lebanese or, you know, it's one kind of thing. And, and so I have said, but you have to see the way in which this community developed to understand that there is a Canadian Islam. There is an Islam that adapt, adapted to and felt at home in a Canadian environment. And there was never what I would call a separation complex, a, an attempt to hive off the community from uh, integration into the larger community. And I think that's one of the secrets of al-Rashid's success. And it has, in effect, because of it, its old relationship in Canada, it has in effect become a kind of icon in the development of Islam in Canada. <coughs> now, um, beginning in the, the, the 1970s and then uh, moving on from there, um, there's uh, social uh change happening in the community, the, the community is becoming more diverse, um, and it's kind of, uh, uh, it's makeup. Um, there's a movement to establish a, a, a new building uh, as the mosque center. Um, and then, of course, you know, as we move into um, the, the later 70s and then uh, the 80s and 90s, uh, there's these kind of increasing um uh, political questions about uh, the role of of Muslims in the so-called West. Um, could you could you tell us a little bit about this period? And I guess this is the same time that you kind of uh, entered the scene, uh, just as a as a professor there. Um, so what what was happening uh, during the nineteen seventies? Um, how did the the community change? What what made the the need for a new building? Uh, arise? How are these things developing at this period? Yeah, that's a good question because you see um, the, the entire complex of Alberta as a society shifted from, you know, the 70s on and that's when oil, when Alberta hit an oil boom and the oil boom affected the, uh, the Muslims particularly because many of them were in Lac La Biche, were in the north, were where there was a, a developing uh, oil sands. And then, of course, the oil um, in central Alberta became a kind of international success. So all of these things um, contributed to a influx of Muslims who, for one reason or other, wanted to come. And one of the main reasons was that they wanted to get in on the... Um, development on the uh, extraordinary money that was flowing into the province at the time. So 
um, there was also what I would call a kind of uh, depression about what was going on in the Middle East. You know, like the heartland of the Arabs, which, who, and they're the, they were the, the founding fathers of this tradition, um, were totally in, uh, in chaos, and they, the, the presence of Israel had uh, kind of thrown them off, and, and so they, they really didn't know how to uh, face local histories. So when they came to Canada, uh, they really were looking at ways in which they could adapt to a Canadian society without the whole baggage of the Middle East attaching to them. And so, um, you know, when you look at the heartland territories and the complexities um, that they were facing, the, um, founding a community in Canada seemed to be the thing to do. So everybody all the Muslims from various uh, countries were coming here and they were going to Alberta and to Edmonton and Calgary um, as a way of, of finding an entirely new kind of life. And then um, it's also true that at that time, um, Pierre Trudeau was prime minister and, as, and um, during this period of time, Idi Amin, uh, you know, kicked the... Um, uh, one group of uh, Muslims out of his country, the Ismailis, and uh, Pierre Trudeau was a good friend of the Aga Khan, and they made a deal that Canada would take all of these refugees. And so uh, many of these spread across the country, and a good many of them came to Alberta. And, and this was an entirely different Islamic tradition, and the Albertans were, were used to the Sunni Arab tradition, but they they had to adapt now and understand that Islam was far more varied than what um, was expressed in the local mosque. At the same time, um, the success of Alberta and economically attracted Muslims to migrate to uh, Canada. And of course, it's in this period of time that a good number of other people from Egypt, Iraq, Syria, um, Turkey um, came to Alberta and many of them were Sunnis and so they would join in, the, in Al Rashid. That's the period of time when it was, became obvious that the old mosque, the, the mosque built in 1938, could no longer support the community as it just exploded in numbers and so um, it became necessary then for them to develop a new mosque. And the new mosque became the focal point then of developing what I would call an institutional Islam. An institutional Islam being one that had a, a definitive discipline, a, a concern for a certain kind of Islamic presence, and to take its place as a religious community within the larger framework of religions in Alberta. That's when the new Al-Rashid Mosque was developed and, and they brought funding and enterprise and all of those things together in, in building this new mosque.
Um, so these kinds of things were intriguing to me as a scholar. And I watched this development over the, the many years I was there, which as you can tell, I, I came to the university just as this thing was exploding and getting off the ground and the new mosque was being proposed and all of that. So um, it was really an exciting time. And everybody was looking forward to, you know, great things. And the Muslim community itself was, was attracting uh, refugees and immigrants and from all different stripes of Islam. So it became, uh, what, a phenomenon. And, and I was looking on this from my position at the University of Alberta as a professor in Islamic studies, trying to understand how this is different than the Islam that I had studied in the Middle East. Now, in the uh, in the the 80s and 90s, um, there's a kind of uh, growing awareness of, of Muslims by Canadian neighbors, perhaps, mm -hmm. uh, kind of changing attitudes, uh, perhaps about the, the, the role of their presence, uh, the kind of uh, simultaneity of being Muslim and being Canadian. Um, how how were Muslims understood and received by their their non-Muslim community members b before 9-11? Well, um, that's a complex question. <laughs> um, the, the early Muslims focused on building the community from within. And while they related to the people back in the Middle East, communication and, um, and interaction with them was minimal. So they really were on their own. They had to develop their own community. By the 70s, as you probably know, communications had just exploded. And so they were, you know, there was almost much more awareness of what was going on in the Middle East. As, as you are aware, uh, Israel became a common topic then. What kind of perspectives are they going to have, are Muslims in Canada going to have, towards, for example, the Palestinian issue? There were Palestinians in the mosque, and some of them wanted a more activist stance against Israel and, and what it was doing. Um, there were also people in the mosque who said, this is, this is not our business. Our business is not to deal with what's going on in the Middle East, even though our community comes from there. Our, our, our institutional role is not to take a political stand on Israel and what is going on in the Middle East. Our role here is to build a community that will sustain and support Muslims in, in this country. So there was a fragmentation within the community on what I would call its overall goals vis-a-vis -vis what was going on in the Middle East. 
it's it's also true i think that many muslims in in alberta uh, had done so well for themselves and they kept bringing their relatives to canada and supporting them so that they could get established here that that their model of of not dealing with political issues um, became a, a more predominant model in the way many people uh, dealt with the whole uh, Middle Eastern situation. And the conflict between various countries in the Middle East and the conflict with Israel and, and uh, American involvement in the Middle East um, became an issue that for them was not something that they could solve. So therefore, they didn't want it uh, pulling them down. Now, uh, within the community itself, there were many people who thought that this was uh, hiding your head in the sand. Um, there were many people in the community who said, look, we have brothers and sisters who are killed and, and have suffered greatly because of what's going on in the Middle East uh, politically, and we should take a stand against what's happening in the Middle East and, and put funds and resources into assisting them. But the, the predominant idea that uh, survived this debate was that we are a, a Canadian group of Muslims and we have to politically adopt a Canadian stance um, and not take a Middle Eastern stance, which is so complex and so chaotic. I think that's the, the focus that they had in the, in the 70s, and they carried that focus right through until you know, the rise of the right wing, especially in Saudi Arabia with uh, the rise of the Wahhabi tradition and the, uh, shall we call it, the ultra-conservative viewpoint that predominated and gave way eventually to Al-Qaeda and, um, and, and what I would call the reactionary right wing. So from many people in the mosque, uh, their stance on keeping out of political issues was the right thing to do. And I think probably from the perspective of uh, what I could see that that, was the, that paid them well because they were able to develop then a community that not only was successful in Canada but had, it was a model for other kinds of uh, Muslims in other places in the world. Now, um, the, uh, the the tragedy of nine eleven and its aftermath, uh, you know, also affected the Canadian Muslim yeah, community very much, yeah. um, and probably threw them into new kind of public light. Um, so, can you tell us kind of how how uh, the events of September eleventh affected the El Rashid community, and and how do they respond as an institution? Oh, that's an interesting part of the whole story, actually. Um, the 
the initial thing, of course, was that um, the community was afraid. <clears throat> I mean, I, I knew many of these people personally, and <clears throat> they were they were afraid that that Canadians would turn against them um, for something that Muslims had done on the other side of the world and for which they had no interest and, and really didn't participate in. Uh, so there was a great deal of fear in the community. And with good reason, because there were, there were cases in which you know, some some right-wing Canadians would pointedly uh, do things to, let's say, children or uh, would yell at women in the street who are wearing a hijab or whatever. And there was a, it was a tense kind of time, and they were concerned that Muslims not be stereotyped and not be pushed into an antagonism uh, through elements that had nothing to do with them. So the community decided, I think, to go inward. In other words, to um, knuckle down on building themselves from within. And, and they decided then that what they would do is to try to develop an Islam a deeper kind of institutional Islam. Now they had, right from the beginning, tried to teach the Quran and Arabic in the mosque, um, in the basement of the old mosque, and then in the basement of the new. And, and they decided then that they were going to try to bring a more educational focus to the community and to Canadians. So what they did then was to move into what I would call public education or an institutionalized Islamic educational model. <clears throat> so they, um, through some very important people, women again, uh, uh, one of them uh, in um, who had worked for many, many years in and teaching like uh, Soraya uh, uh, Hafiz and um, Lila Fallman, both of whom were very well-known teachers within the Edmonton Public School Board. They developed an Arabic and a, um, yes, an Arabic program that was then adapted into the public schools and a couple of schools were chosen to teach Arabic. And from there, they decided to branch out into an Islamic school. And they, they built um, the Islamic Academy, the Edmonton Islamic Academy in 2012. They founded this academy. And the goals of the academy were to present an Islamic education within the Canadian context that had excellence of uh, delivery and excellence of scholarship at its heart. And um, I, I think they were largely successful with that. It has, the Islamic Academy now has become one of the uh, brightest spots in um, Islamic development in Alberta. And I think it's, 
radiated out to other places in, in Canada. Um, the Islamic Academy became the go-to place for Muslims who wanted to place their children in Islamic environments and still to do it in a North American and Canadian context. And so um, uh, they have placed, uh, put a great deal of money into developing educational uh, organizations. They also branched out into what I would call youth training, um, Boy Scouts, uh, Islamic Boy Scouts, uh, young people's groups, uh, women's uh, auxiliaries. They have developed a whole range of Islamic organizational things in, in those years. So in other words, they took some of the models that they saw around them, and they focused upon uh, some of the things that they thought were uh, quintessentially Islamic and also quintessentially Canadian, and that was to develop an institutional uh, organization and a, a, an educational orientation within the desires of the community in such a way that they could become part of the larger environment and, and still be Islamic in tone and character. So um, post 9-11, they did hunker down, but they focused on developing Islamic resources. And out of that has come, I think, an extraordinary achievement in terms of, uh, of an Islamic community uh, center and an, and an educational development, which I think is a, a significant one in Canada. Yeah, and uh, the book really is uh, a wonderful micro history that kind of gives us a, uh, a vantage point to think about uh, the whole kind of national history of Muslims in Canada. Um, uh, Dr. Wall, I, I, we're, we're kind of coming to the end here. I want to uh, give you the opportunity. Um, you know, there's a lot more in this book, um, and uh, it's really goes into great detail. Um, you, you bring in a lot of uh, voices from the community. Um, and I just I, I want to give you the opportunity if there's anything else you want to let uh, listeners know about the book before we we wrap it up. Feel feel free to uh, to let us know. Yeah. Well, um, first of all, um, I didn't intend to write this book. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, I was I was asked to do it by the community, and the reason I was asked to do it by the community is because they thought that if they had an insider do it the insider would place emphasis on one or other of the families, you know? And, and so there's, there are tensions within the group about um, who it is that had the most to do with the development of the community and all that. So part of the reason why they asked me if I would do the book was they were having their 70th anniversary and they wanted a book um, that would kind of outline their history. So um, that's one point. The second point I want to make is that I never uh, adopted um, any uh, of the kind of academic, high academic ideologies that we have, you know, in the community now. I, um, I, I was not concerned to, to apply anything but a very kind of 
common historical model to this group. I was not concerned to, uh, to find some kind of methodological significance in this group, which makes the book much more, I guess, popular than academic. And so I, w- I would say that, you know, I enjoyed writing this book because I, it, it brought me in touch with the community. There are other kinds of limits to doing that. And one is that I found in many, much of my work that there is a corporate loss of history and memory. So there are some things in the book that are there that um, should be changed if it's ever written again, because people had forgotten what had happened and they didn't give me all of the details of what happened. So, you know, when you write a book like this, you're you're really based on corporate memory. And, and I saw some of the limitations of that corporate memory when I did this book. Um, so... Those are just a few notes about it. Al Rashid Mosque itself, I think, is one of the leading mosques in Canada in terms of what they've con- constructed as a as a community, and I think their presence has radiated across Canada and and probably into the states in some um, minor way. Would I write this book again? I would. Probably do it quite differently. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is an excellent book, and I think you uh, are are really um, continuing to uh, establish uh, a, a history of Muslims in Canada, uh, a, a good legacy for uh, others to to build on. And I know people were excited to hear that I was going to be speaking to you about the book. So, uh, congratulations on that. Um, we always uh, wrap these conversations up a little bit about what folks are, are working on now. And, and, you know, you've had a long career and you, you seem like the type of person who's probably still plugging away. So um, <laughs> if there are things you're working on, I would love to hear about them. Well, um, Oxford, uh, if you look up Oxford, I've done several things. Uh, um, after I retired from uh, arts, I went over to medicine. And I taught in medicine at the University of Alberta because uh, medicine in Canada was acutely aware of the fact that it did not have ethnic awareness built into its medical program. So, for example, there was all kinds of problems uh, in medical students understanding how to deal with Muslim women. There were, and a good number of them had problems in understanding how to deal with uh, indigenous people. So they asked me to come over and to teach them about cultural difference and uh, diversity. So I went there after I retired from arts, and, and, and my focus had been on uh, medicine and medical issues. So I, I did several pieces for um, the um, Islamic uh, women's study in Oxford, a, a dictionary of, um, of that. I'm, I'm also working, I've also done an article on um, I guess you'd call it uh, the way in which Islam has developed in various areas in the United States and Canada and how, um, how that's played a role in the definition of what we would call identity. Um, so that article is still um, in the works someplace. Um, it's going to be published by Oxford. 
so um, yeah, I, I'm still working away. <laughs> I, I have several things I could do, um, but one of the issues that I am, am thinking about is the way in which uh, minority communities um, become uh, aware in the, in a, a new kind of cultural context. So. How do Muslims or indigenous people who have been suppressed for so long in terms of what uh, people think, how long, how do they uh, take their rightful place in a diverse uh, cultural um, situation like we have in Canada? So I'm thinking about these. I haven't written anything about it yet, but I'm thinking about that. Well, they sound like uh, interesting questions, and from uh, your your long track record, I'm sure it'll be uh, very worthwhile taking a look. So good luck on all of that, and thanks again for making the time to talk, Dr. Wall. Oh, you're welcome. So thank you very much for this uh, chance to look back. Mm -hmm.